0: You're listening to Rick Kleffel, The Agony Column Podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.
1: Terry tilts his head in the direction of the stairs and Hurley steps out of the shadows. How the hell I missed Hurley is a tribute to my lack of awareness. The guy is a giant, really, 6'8 and over 350. And on top of that, he just happens to be one of us. So what you've got here is your basic gargantuan Irish vampire. Oh, and he's retarded. I shouldn't say that. What I mean is he's dumb as a sack of hammers. Whether he's actually retarded, I don't know. I sit back down. Sure thing, Terry. You got a question. Shoot. Terry smiles and nods, see man, that's the way it should be, just two guys sitting and talking, people, people talking about their problems with each other, finding solutions. If everybody could do this, if we could get the world together like this, we could change everything, man, like, for instance, my problem is this thing last night, this whole hassle over the, well, it used to be a community center, man, but pretty soon it's going to be another yuppie co-op, but... "'Anyway, this thing over at the old center, this hassle with the zombies,' Tom jumps out of his chair. "'That's what I'm talking about! That right there! We rejected that term, man! We voted! They're not zombies! That belittles their status as victims, man! They're infected, not in control of themselves, and creeps like this stooge are still going around slaughtering them!' Terry bobs his head. Well, you have a point there, Tom. The term zombie does put the onus on them for their actions and implies blame. So, what was the term? VOZ, victim of zombification. Lydia finally pipes up. I'm still opposed to the use of the word victim. It suggests weakness, helplessness. Terry holds up his hand. I think you might be right there, Lydia. But for now, as regards the conversation I'm having here with Joe, could we agree that VOZ is a valid term? Tom and Lydia look at one another and nod. Good. See, Joe, people solving problems.
0: Charlie Houston is the author of the Hank Thompson trilogy, which includes Caught Stealing, Six Bad Things, and A Dangerous Man. He's also the author of the Joe Pitt Casebooks, a vampire noir series that includes Already Dead and No Dominion. Welcome to the program, Charlie.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Charlie, let's talk a little bit about your biography. Tell us how you... Grew up with genre fiction. How you discovered it?
1: Very young. I had, I had an older cousin who was a huge fan of Tolkien and The Lord of the Rings. And every time I'd go to, to visit that house... He would tell me a little more of the story. I didn't know how to read yet, and so he was just obsessed with it, and he would tell me little bits and pieces, and eventually ended up, over the course of several months, telling me the whole Lord of the Rings story, and he would also quiz me on who the characters were. So I can I can remember i had show up and being asked, okay, who's Frodo, and who's, what's his uncle's name, and who are the Rays? And so this kind of got the idea of fantasy into my head, and I, I learned to read late. Uh, I didn't learn how to read until I was five or six, And once I started, I almost immediately started reading fantasy and science fiction and eventually horror and mystery and all things genre.
0: Your work is very noir, it's very violent. Now, you grew up in Oakland. I'm wondering, was Oakland a violent place back then?
1: I didn't actually grow up in Oakland. I, oh. I was born in Oakland. I grew up in the East Bay in a, in, in a, in a decidedly unviolent uh, suburb uh, called Livermore. There is nothing in my personal history, I think, to suggest or, or imply the buckets of blood, the, the broken bones, the fusillades of bullets. I'm still trying to piece together where the violence comes from.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about violence. When you write about violence in the Hank Thompson books and in the Joe Pitt books, there's a lot of it. It's very well described. As a writer, do you have to choreograph it for yourself, like work out the moves as to when two people, when you're describing about a fight and people are, you know, stabbing one another and punching one another and wrenching one another's limbs off and backwards, do you Work those moves out yourself? The limb-wrenching in particular, that's that's always tricky.
1: Yes, there's definitely a choreography that's involved. There are a couple things going on. One is that I, I always want the violence to have some kind of an impact, and, and I want it to have an impact on, this is more so in the in the crime books than in the vampire books. I want it to have an impact on the, the characters who are committing it and on whom it is being inflicted, and an impact on the the reader as well, which has something to do with how graphic it tends to be. I also want it to make sense. There are times where it's over-detailed sometimes, and it becomes burdensome to try and describe. There's a fight sequence in my first novel, Caught Stealing, that takes place in a small bathroom between... Hank, who's a big guy and a much smaller opponent. Hank is incredibly outmatched by the smaller opponent. And trying to describe the details of how the smaller opponent gets the upper hand and why and how the space affects the, the fight was very important to me. And it's it's just become uh, habitual now. I, I see, tend to see the things fairly vividly, and I want to try and communicate them as, as, as vividly as I see them in my head. And sometimes they get a little hyper-detailed. And I think it bogs down the narrative a little Little bit, and that's 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 what editors are for.
0: Let's talk a little bit about Hank Thompson. He's an interesting character. He's a bartender who becomes involved in a typical Hitchcock manner in a, an escalating series of increasing violence.
1: Hank starts as a bartender and a one-time baseball protege who has no real violent inclinations other than the ones required, for, you know, by by being a, a bartender in New York. Um, which mostly has to do with just speaking from my own experience as a bartender in New York, it just has to do with a, a sense of self-preservation and realizing that by just being sober, you tend to be several IQ points, dozens of IQ points superior to the average drunk which means there's there's usually a, a, a solution to any kind of, you know, potentially physically threatening situation that arises in the bar. So Hank is not a fighter at all. I've thought a lot about this book now because it's been years since I've, I've read Written it and and why it's so violent and and what I wanted what I think it's it's about because on the because it is a very simple plot and it is very much that just the classic wrong man Hitchcock scenario where Hank has something he doesn't know he has and people want it and they pursue him and things get worse and worse and worse and worse, and worse for him until he is initially driven to do things in 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 seeking self preservation hurts or kills people without trying and and in the end kills people quite deliberately and not out of self-preservation but at For Revenge. When I think about the book now, I think about it in terms of being a book about what, then this speaks back to what I was saying before about wanting the violence to have an impact about what violence does to people. I don't believe that as it occurs in in a great deal of genre fiction, uh, whether it's on the page or or on TV or in in movies, most of the time violence has very little impact unless somebody's uh, wife is being killed or their child is being killed. You generally see people, uh, particularly when it's inflicted on themselves, you know, once they heal coming through this without being a different person. And you see people who are capable, who do horrible things themselves. And then when, you know, the book is over, their lives just return to normal. And that just doesn't seem right to me. More than anything, the Hank Thompson trilogy to me is about what happens when extreme violence collapses in on an otherwise normal life and particularly what happens when a man is driven to uh, willfully commit acts of violence and how that, that might change a person.
0: One thing that interests me is your books have a lot of anger in them. I mean, it seems that, that there's a, a bristling anger beneath the surface of your writing. Do you have to work up this bristling anger or do you just, once you step into the character, do you just acquire it? Can I
1: start using the F word yet? <laughs> sure. Uh I'm I'm not a a angry person particularly. I'm fairly laid back, uh which is not to say I'm not prickly or anything like that, but I I do believe that what is in there is is coming out in the books. And that part of the reason that I think in day-to-day life I'm a pretty laid back mellow person is because it's all vented in my fiction. I'm more angry with every passing day as a matter of fact, and it's not about personal things, because I've got about as good a personal life as I think that a human being has a right to think they could ever have in terms of uh, great personal relationships and a wonderful wife and uh, lovely, uh, you know, family and parents and, and uh, a great occupation. and uh, And I'm knocking my head here in lieu of wood to knock on and uh, all of those things but i'm deeply distressed at the condition of the world and my distress is often felt in the amount of bile uh, gurgling up my esophagus and, and wanting to vomit forth as the world becomes relentlessly more and more violent around us and I I find that the level of violence in the books is escalating and I also find it's easier when you asked about Oakland being a violent town earlier if I came from in you know a, a town that had where you know Oakland has a reputation as being a hard town you know um I I the world is violent I don't need to grow up in a violent town I didn't need to grow up in a bad neighborhood I didn't need to grow up in, a, in an abusive family I didn't need to grow up you know as part of a street gang to have violence you know relentless whether whether it's coming at you through fiction or just the the real fucking world man and it, and it's and the the level of it is frighteningly intense and and the graphic depictions of of real violence are Right there in the grill right now. I've got the front page of the New York Times right now, and I had to when I opened it up in my hotel room uh, to to look at over my breakfast this morning. I had to refold it because the right there on the front page is the latest uh, series of bombings in Baghdad, and the photograph has you know, got gutters full of blood. Uh, so how hard is it to write about gutters full of blood?
0: I guess not hard at all. One thing that uh, I think is interesting is... The noir genre that you write in is noted for a kind of a social realism. And I think one of the things that drives the anger is the luxury gap, the, the, the income gap. The noir uh, characters operate at the lowest level, but they also have this kind of like hot wire to the people at the highest level. And it's the difference between those two that generates some of the violence. And I'm wondering how that informs your work.
1: There's kind of what what you could call the noir demi monde, you know that there's there there is that, uh in the same sense as the classic dem, demi monde of the, you know the the aristocracy circulating with the whores and the the artists and you know and the thieves and and whatnot, and that's you know there's this that same aspect in is uh, classic. Um, Uh, feature of noir and it's that idea that the people with the most to lose at the top of the food chain i think uh, sometimes need the people with the least of to lose to do their dirty work because there aren't going to be a whole lot of you know there aren't going to be a whole lot of rich private investigators so they're going to have to go to another social level to to access that i don't know if it if it informs the violence particularly or the or the anger but it it it's a natural place to find friction, you know. If you've got a character, there's less of it in the Hank Thompson books, where it tends to be mo- just almost exclusively bottom dwellers in in that book. And when you find the wealthy characters, uh, they're usually gangsters, um, uh, with the exception of of a of one one well paid baseball player. But in the the pit books, which are actually even though. Joe is a vampire and he operates in a in a in a in a world that is rife with with vampires. It's actually the more classically noir of the two of the two sets of of stories that I've been writing. Um, despite the horror trappings, it's it's much more hard boiled, and it's it and it adheres to those conventions a little bit more. It it creates it's great to have that fra- that friction between somebody who who has nothing to lose really, who who says exactly what's on his mind, who doesn't give a fuck about what you think about him or anybody thinks about him, who is really just wants to survive another day for for what fucking reason he doesn't really know. Um, other than that just seems to be the way to go. So when seated across the room from someone who's used to being deferred to, um, and having their ass kissed, you know, you get this, this great, you know, this great friction that is, that's classic through, throughout the, the genre. Um, and you also, I, I think it's going to be natural that you're going to get a, a certain stick it to the man attitude that's, you know, going to come out of that, um,
0: Let's talk a little bit about noir. Tell us what was your experience of noir literature? When did you first read it yourself and why did you decide to write in that vein?
1: The first thing that I remember reading was uh Hammett and um I'm not it was it was either The Thin Man or The Maltese Falcon. I'm not sure which, and I had I had seen the movies uh before that and it was in my late teens early 20s was where i really discovered it and to this day i'm i've i've read um uh, all of the hammett and all of the chandler and a great deal of the of the uh, of Patricia Highsmith's work which is not really noir but uh, she she usually gets lumped in with those guys, um, and uh, Jim Thompson, and a handful of of other writers, but I'm not very well read in the contemporary noir at at all. One writer who I had, um, I discovered in my mid-late 20s, uh, was James Elroy, who's you know, pretty much the strongest contemporary noir writer at his when he's writing at his best uh out there. And that was those were books that I was reading right about the time that I sat down and and started working on caught stealing. So that was probably the, the direct the most direct uh noir influence. Really the motivation was that I was looking for a creative outlet. I had uh I was living in New York working uh as a bartender and I had been uh, working in a theater company, and I had, was no longer working with the theater company. I wasn't doing anything creative, and I had always written as a, as for for fun, uh, and so I was just trying to write something I had never written noir. So I was really writing. I I was enjoying the genre a great deal, and I wanted to write something to entertain myself, and so I started writing what I thought would be a short story, and just kept getting longer and longer and longer. And initially, Hank was. Um, I'd planned Hank to be more like a, like a Joe Pitt character, not a vampire, but a more traditionally hard-boiled detective kind of character. But I I found that it was easier to write about a character who was a bartender with sore feet because I was a bartender with sore feet, so that you know came a little more naturally and ended up being more interesting for me at the time.
0: Tell us a little bit about noir is an interesting way to do social commentary, and tell us a little bit about how you use some of those. Traditions of noir to as for social commentary. It,
1: it's never, it's never strictly, it's never particularly conscious when it happens, and, and sometimes the the places where it it seems like it would be the where it'd be the most where it's the most. Literal are where it's the least literal, and all and already dead. The vampires are divided into clans that control different pieces of turf in in Manhattan, and the most powerful is the Coalition, and it's it's very uniform, it's very homogenous and uh, rigid, and and you know with with shades of fascism. But I wrote. Those, and the, And the, the parallel the obvious the obvious parallel to make, the obvious connection to make is to coalition forces in in the Middle East and implications about the current uh, presidential administration and, and all of that. But I wrote the first hundred pages of that book, including naming that that clan the coalition in 2000, I think. Um, so I had slapped that on there long before that was that was an issue sometimes it's not I don't feel like so it's so much commentary having uh, there's a, a clan in uh, in Harlem called the hood and uh, I, I, it's, it, I don't even know how much of it is commentary I would say as as observation it's just uh, uh, there is racism and there are race relation problems and um, and I it's it's not possible to write about a clan of, of, of vampires <laughs> who are predominantly african american with without that without dealing with race relations and 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 the fact that you know uh, a lot of white people and black people and brown people and red people and yellow people and you know really have a lot of fucking problems with each other <laughs> and don't like each other one place where it is really concrete is uh, i refer to a a settlement of coalition of vampires living on hood turf as a, as a settlement, and I refer to it as uh, their um, their West Bank settlement, and that was that was conscious, and that had a lot to do with just the news of the day. And at one point, I talk about moving. Uh, Joe being transported between coalition forces or coalition camps uh, as uh, in, in terms of rendition. And when I was writing that, it was when rendition was a big story in the papers, when uh, suspected terrorists were being extradited from United States or, or European Union soil to countries that had uh, different policies about what kind of physical force and means you could use in interrogation and i i read this term in the paper extreme rendition and just the sound of it alone is is frightening and then when i was was reading about uh, it, when then then the the process it was was in my mind and it and it seemed to apply so uh, I know that part of the reason that noir is good for this stuff is the same thing we were talking about before the meeting of the high and the low. So both ends of the social spectrum get to reflect on one another and uh, and since it's a demimonde or the races mix as well and the economic classes mix as well and men and women mix in non-traditional manners. So there's always chances chance to observe these things and uh I try not to as a narrator Talk about them explicitly, but I do sometimes observe behavior or have the, the the protagonist observing behavior and show things in the way the characters interact without talking about it too loud.
0: Let's talk a little bit about something called the pulps. You own the domain name Pulp Noir, and your work does fit into that. And one of the ways that it fits into it, you mentioned that it's been years since you wrote *Caught Stealing*, but. You know, it's only been three years, and we've got five books from you. That that's a pulp-like pace for writing. So I'm wondering how much you how you pay how you write so fast and and quite well, and how that uh, if the tradition of the pulps of grinding stuff out at a rapid pace how that informs your work
1: grinding grinding is the is the word man uh it's actually been it's been longer caught stealing was written in 99 i think okay so it was written well 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 before publication um however since 2003 which is i believe when that book was sold it's i've now in addition to the five books that are published i've written there are two more that are that are done that that will be published in the next year. So it's, I've written six six books since then, and it is and the pace is about two a year so far. And on top of that, I do some some work writing in comic books and some other some other sidebar work. Um, and it was a this was this was something that I wrote about a little bit on my website, and uh, um, it was a revelation for me when I I reached the point. Initially, I was it was just an opportunity that that I could that. I had the the chance to sell these books and and to not be bartending and to not have sore feet, which was glorious. And uh, so just writing, 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 and not thinking about it too much and, and making choices because you have to make choices. And it was only in the last year or so when I'd start reviewing manuscripts and going over proof pages and layout pages and seeing things that I really wished... I could change or take back, but it was either too late in the process or the next deadline was already pressing too much that there there wasn't a chance to do it, and the books still held together well as as they were, but there were times when i I wished I could pull out a whole subplot and rewrite it and um really do really have a little a bit little more space to to make these choices and It was only then that I had this kind of revelation that I went, oh pulp that <laughs> this is this is it's you know the the defining factors of pulp are not necessarily you know uh large-breasted women and and laser guns and and uh and you know 45s and fedoras and you know tough guys and malls and 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 tentacled monsters and stuff the real defining feature of pulp and why it has wonderful in- inconsistencies and 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 a reputation as as for having a real simplicity of of style and a real directness of style and uh, and a lack of long uh, descriptive passages about you know uh, the the glories of nature um, is time. You know the 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 true pulp writers were were grinding this stuff out and and working on deadline and trying to pay the bills and uh, and they had to write a lot of it and they had to write it fast because they didn't get paid especially well. Um, I I I'm, I make a, a a a lovely living being a writer, but it definitely is contingent upon me writing two books a year to do it. So I suddenly had this realization that that. You know, I'm I'm no longer. This is this isn't something I'm aping. This isn't something I'm aspiring to. This isn't a style I'm copying. I'm a pulp writer. I'm writing comic books and vampire novels and hard boiled fiction, crime fiction, and I'm writing it in a, on a on a schedule that means that when I get to the end of a corridor narratively and there are three doors. Uh, I don't get to sit there in the middle of the corridor and ponder which door and what might be beyond that door, nor do I get to pick one of the doors and go halfway down it and go, ah, door number two, and run back down to door number two. Once I pick door number three, I got to keep going down that corridor. There isn't, there isn't time to go back and, and change that. And that means if I get way down the next section and I realize that something isn't fitting, I got to find a way to make that fucker fit. Um, which leads to some, some, you know, s- there's, there is, um, there's a lot of not tying at the end of the pit books. There's a lot of, there are a lot of loose ends that tend to get rab- tend to get tied up. And there are some that I like to leave dangling. There are some that just feel right just to, to leave them loose. And I'm starting to embrace all of the, all of that. There, there are things that were driving me crazy a year ago that I wanted to fix, I'm now realizing that a lot of those warts are just a part of the style. They're a part of the of of the genre. They're they're a part of what pulp is, and they're they're kind of they're kind of wonderful. And it's also interesting now to go back and read uh um not as much Chandler, uh more I find it more in Hammett and definitely a lot of it in Jim Thompson. Um and read these guys and and places where you're like that, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever or that doesn't fit. And realizing why those are there that it's not necessarily bad workmanship or oversight it's it is oversight but it's also oversight and you know no opportunity to go back and fix it later it's you know it's not as if i'm sure that some of these guys and ladies men and women wouldn't have preferred to have you know much more polished work sometimes this is just what the market allowed
0: let's talk about the joe pitt books these are, are vampire novels that in which your character Joe Pitt is a vampire detective. Uh tell us a little bit about your concept of the vampire and, and why you chose to to write in this particular genre.
1: Um it was less less my choice and more more the genre's choice. It was definitely it was a situation. Once again, I was trying to entertain myself. Uh I when I started the Pitt books, I was this was again well before I had sold anything. And, and wasn't really even thinking about selling anything. So I sat down after I finished caught stealing and put it in a drawer where I thought it would rest in peace. Um, and fortunately didn't. I, uh, I wanted to write something else. And I wanted to write something that was a little looser, looser, a little shaggier. Something where I didn't have to think quite as hard about how the the violence would affect the characters because i wanted to move outside of the real world and i was a little uh, uh worn down by that i wanted something with a real tough guy uh, who who could do things with with impunity and
0: and uh skill and so You mean getting the staples pulled out of <laughs> <Adam> <laughs> Hank Thompson <laughs> while somebody torreds the cat wasn't wasn't tough enough for
1: you It wasn't so much it was it was t- that was that was tough but it wasn't and he and he endures it well But Hank, when he, when, when Hank gets into a fight with someone, they, until later on in the, in the trilogy, they, they tend to be wounded or, or killed more, you know, by accident than, than by design. Uh, uh, With, with Joe, Joe knows how to fight. Joe's a, Joe's a badass. Joe's a real tough guy. He's a real fighter. He's a real scrapper. And uh, and he doesn't mind using violence, whereas Hank is always kind of tortured on some level when, when these things happen. Joe has no conscience about it whatsoever. He doesn't necessarily like his life, but, you know, tear your ear off? Sure, tear your ear off. No problem. Doesn't Doesn't gross him out. Doesn't bother him. He's done it a half dozen times in the last week anyway. So what's the big deal? Um. So I was trying to write something a, a little bit looser and, and for me, funner. Uh, which again, I don't know what that has to say about me or my upbringing. And, uh, and cool was, you know, I was talking the other day to some, some readers and I was saying one of the funnest things about writing the Joe books is when I come to one of those decision-making points, I was talking about, uh, where I have to choose, should I do A or choose B? Thinking about the implications on the plot is less of concern than thinking about which of these would be cooler, um... And and then I'll worry about unraveling it later. Right now, I just need something cool. Um, so that was it. There there was I was just trying to write something that would be fun and also and always trying to write something I would like to write. And then the mythology that I uh, was constructed is not is not original to, to myself as the I didn't I didn't. F- Think about it at the time. I knew that I wanted it to have vampirism to have a biological basis instead of a supernatural one, or at least for everybody to think it's a biological basis. Uh, so there's a virus that causes vampirism in these books, and and I wanted to have, you know talk about it in pseudo scientific terms. I have a I have a biochemist friend who flinches every time you know he looks he he says, well, the fiction is good, but. <laughs> And and then he and then he gets a little eye twitch when uh, I say, "What, well, Steve? What about?" Uh, I'm exaggerating. Uh, and uh, so anyway, I wanted to do that. It was only later I was having a conversation with somebody, and Richard Matheson came up, who uh, who wrote a book called uh, "I Am Legend," which was made into a movie with Vincent Price, which was also made into a better-known movie called The Omega Man. And in that book, he goes to great length describing. The, the agency of vampirism as a virus. And, and, uh, and it was only once I had that conversation with this friend of mine that I went, oh, that's who I stole that from. Because I knew I had seen it somewhere before, but I couldn't, I couldn't remember exactly where. Um, all writing is cannibalism um, in one form or another, all fiction writing.
0: And there's a bit of cannibalism in your books too. Oh yeah, there is.
1: <laughs> uh uh we could argue about whether it's cannibalism for a vampire to 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 drink blood. I'm not I haven't decided yet exactly how that fits in. Anyway, just having fun more than anything else.
0: One of the things that you're having fun doing is developing the backstory for your vampires. I, I'm wondering how much you knew in advance and how much you're exploring in the books. Um
1: Very little in advance initially, but when when uh, the opportunity came up to to sell the Joe Pitt case books uh, to a publisher, um, one of the things that I needed to present was a Bible for the universe, which outlined how vampirism works, what are, you know, the different clans, all the all the kinds of details to give a publisher, prospective publisher, some evidence that I knew what the hell I was doing and I had a plan and this wasn't just because if if you're proposing a series, they wanna know that there's another book. They wanna know there's book two, book two, book three, book four. So while initially when I started Already Dead, there was no real plan and I just kind of let everything evolve at a certain when I did this, I had a hundred pages done, and I had to create some backstory. Some of it had, you know, some of it was there, but it's it got deepened when I did that. At this point, I pretty much know. At this point, I, I, I've completed the manuscript for book three, and I'm projecting five books to to wrap up the series. And I pretty much know where everybody's from where and where they're going and and what revelations will come out about where everybody's where everybody's been but there was definitely a great deal particularly in no dominion in book two of of steering it trying to steer characters in places that that I didn't know for certain that that was that was where they came from or to steer them out of places I didn't know that that's where they came from I do a lot of i do a lot of because of the because of the 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 uh the speed that i'm working at there's always a great deal of you know thinking on my feet and making things up as i go along
0: one of the things that i have to observe about your books is they're very funny it doesn't matter i mean and <clears throat> the violence is funny the vampirism is funny and the language is funny so i want to talk to you a little bit about the the sense of humor that you have in your books uh, i i i think many readers might start to worry about themselves when they're reading like the scene in the in caught stealing where they're popping the staples out of the guy and they've got the cat going over here and and you're laughing. So what is it that you do as a writer to get that? Do you find that funny or...
1: (laughs) Well, Rick, I you know if I don't think people should be worrying about me, I think they should be worrying about you. You're the one that's laughing. Uh, I, I've 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 had people who have told me that they they've stopped they stopped reading intimate friends who haven't read that book because they got the, to the to the staple popping and, and then the cat torture in particular and they and they had to bail out. And I understand. I I'm, you're disturbing me. There are definitely places where I'm trying to get a laugh. There are definitely places where I'm trying to release a little tension. Or or kind of play the mundane concerns of life against something completely fucked up that's that's happening. I'm never. I'm, I'm very very rarely trying to write something funny. It's it is almost always just kind of incidental to the voice and to the style and to and to what's going on. It was it was strange for me when um the editor who uh who, who who bought Caught Stealing um expressed to me that he thought of it first and foremost as a comic novel and as a as comic uh you know crime and uh and I, I was I I was I, to because, because to me I was like this, these are there are horrible things happening in this book and look at the emotional trauma um but i understand it you know and i and i did I, I i wasn't really that all that confused i mean i got it i understood it and i knew that that step was in there and i know that that hank is particularly self-deprecating and uh and and bemoaning you know the 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 bizarre happenings all around him and i know that joe is uh Profoundly sarcastic and cynical, uh, and hard-boiled to a a comic extent in in many places, and undercuts many situations by you know uh, uh, with his sarcasm. And there's you know there's absurdity in in you know hippie vegan vampires. <laughs> that some of those moments you know v- victims of zombification is definitely played for humor but i don't know i it's uh, the, the cliche is that if you try to be funny then you know you can't be funny that part I, I have no i have no idea i have no idea i'm i'm actually i'm always delighted when people tell me that they think the books are are, are funny or when they somebody writes me an email and they they say oh this just cracked me up somebody uh, just recently wrote me an email and said that uh, the part of no dominion when joe bites somebody's eye out and made him laugh uh and then and then later in the book when he when he retells when the the subject of him by having bitten this character's eye out comes up they say he laughed again and uh i you know i i wrote an email back and my email back said yeah eye biting always good for a chuckle it never occurred to me that that would you know the 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 later scene when he when he references it again yeah but when he was actually doing it never occurred to me that that would be the least bit humorous but I think being funny is really really hard so i'm always I'm always flattered when people think it's funny and i kind of I kind of love it and and I think that that's where the best humor comes from. I think that when somebody's trying to when somebody's just trying to tell a story that they think that is is a good story and trying to tell it as earnestly and honestly as as they believe it should be told, and there's a great deal of humor incidental to that that's you know that's where I think you get the best laugh so i you know i I've kind of stumbled into it for the most part, but I'm nothing could make me happier. It's a slapstick with chainsaws or eye biting. Yeah, and you know, uh, anybody who's ever seen Evil Dead Two will will know exactly what you're talking about. If you if you want if you want a filmic reference to to uh, to that style, and there's you know there and there are other scenes that are meant to be played very very straight. There's a there's a, a long action sequence at the end of Already Dead that takes place in the basement of an abandoned school. Which is is not intended to have any of that slapstick effect, but it's so over the top that I also, you know, it just, I think it, a lot of it is just state of mind. I think a lot of it is where somebody, who's, what somebody's sensibility is. I know a lot of people, the, you know, the, the nonstop use of the word fuck, the, uh, the nonstop bloodshed, they, it's not just offensive to some people, but unreadable because, it hits them on a gut level so so deeply and they wouldn't see they wouldn't see the unintentional humor they wouldn't see the intentional humor they wouldn't project any humor into it whatsoever and it would just be you know not any kind of a, a moral or you know just a taste judgment it would just be a gut level reaction to all of that it would just be this is awful this is horrible how can you even write about a world that's so relentlessly violent and grim and vulgar and you know and blood soaked and i would say well did you see the front page of the New York Times today? (laughs) How how could I write about anything else?
0: (laughs) One of the things that you do really well, you have great dialogue, and your dialogue is very funny, and it's very easy to read, and you use the Dash style of dialogue, somewhat poofy for hard-boiled fiction. Tell us a little bit about the decision to go with the poofy Dash style for your hard-boiled dialogue, and do you listen to people? Do you like record people when you are you know hanging out at the bar or
1: ironically i'm recording us right now uh uh, beyond the recording that's happening i'm not actually i just uh, terror just came into rick's eyes i've got competition uh no i i don't record people um i will occasionally overhear somebody say something that's you know I, i was my wife and i were having drinks with a couple recently and uh the our our friend was telling a story about a night where he got hideously hideously drunk in New Orleans several years ago and he said man i wasn't just shitty i was new orleans shitty and uh and i immediately reached for a napkin cuz i i knew that the phrase new orleans shitty would end up in a in a book at some point the poofy dash marks were uh, symptomatic of, of two things. The first thing is that uh, w- uh, that I'm a, I'm a horrible typist and a very slow typist. And uh, since when I was writing Caught Stealing, it was for my own entertainment and I never expected anyone to see it, I didn't bother using quotation marks because why? Uh, it just is you just have to hit more keys and do more things with your fingers and it just hitting the dash just was that much easier and the it, the the reason for you know the 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 dialogue just spills down the page with no he said she said they said simperingly or you know apologetically A big influence of that is in addition to having been having been having reading been reading a great deal of James L. Roy at the time I was reading a great deal of Cormac McCarthy and Cormac McCarthy writes his dialogue songs any indication whatsoever that it's that it's dialogue it rolls down the page and sometimes it just rolls around with the prose and gets it on and and and. and I and I liked the feel of it. And I liked that the that conversations went bang, 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 bang. But there's very few indications. If you miss if you miss who has the first line in a sequence of dialogue, you're screwed. Um, so there were a couple of things that I was trying to to adapt to make work. One was using the dash marks. It was a little bit there was some indication that dialogue was happening. And uh trying to proceed Sections of dialogue with the speaker taking some immediate action. So Rick reaches for his bottle of apple cider. Well, Charlie, the other thing, da, 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 and and trying to give some kind of leadoff to who was speaking, if uh, if there was some sequence of action that you know. It comes in the middle of a sequence of dialogue but I didn't realize at the time that the dash mark has you know a, a 19th century you know pedigree and uh, a european pedigree and and uh, and because i'm'm I'm, I'm, I'm an ill-read lout I had no idea that James Joyce you know that that I, I picked up a copy of ulysses a couple of years back to take a crack at it and I get to the you know first first sequence of dialogue and there are the dash marks. and I'm like well they're Fucker. i'm ripping off james joyce it was again as as with most of the stuff that that i do it's it, i am only recently starting to really think about writing and it's probably the death knell it's it's probably means doom and destruction and bad prose coming you know right around the bend but but initially virtually every choice that i made was was just made because i wasn't thinking about anything but Entertain myself and writing in some fashion that that's that that worked for me because I wasn't thinking about publishing and I wasn't thinking about anybody else reading it and I wasn't thinking about how other people had done things. You know, I I knew things that I liked and I was just trying to do something with them.
0: When you write vampire novels, vampires are a powerful symbol. I mean, it it really uh once you bring up a vampire, it has all sorts of associations with aristocracy I mean the the first vampires that most people saw were you know the rotting aristocracy of Dracula I mean they're not just they're the aristocracy is literally undead and um so I'm wondering what kind of symbolism you associated with the vampire for yourself when you first saw it and how you intend it in your books if at all
1: I would say not at all um you know, I, it's, I'm trying to think, I, I mean, to me, vampires were just scary. You know, when I was, I was a sucker, uh, when I was, you know, well into my teens, I was a, I was a sucker for a horror novel or a horror movie in terms of it actually scaring me, uh, even, you know, old and, and, uh, bad, actually the older, the older, the bad the better. Um but I can remember uh being scared by and, and still considering uh one of my favorite horror movies of all time is to be uh Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, uh which is a wonderful movie and, and the 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 real monster the genuine monster sequences are actually really creepy and, and well done. So I don't I don't know that I ever had a a, a particular idea about vampires and what they could represent or what they did represent other than they were just cool monsters. Likewise, I don't know that, I I don't know that as a, as an entity in the, the the different clans are kind of evolving to represent, you know, or, or reflect different areas of society and different social, social groups and classes and, and, but, but vampires as a whole, I don't know if they, that they symbolize anything for me and, and, or that I set out to, I don't know, it's, there's nothing. There's no, that key hasn't turned in my brain yet. I, based on the experience I've had reflecting on my work, I would expect in a year or two that there's going to be something that's going to kind of unfold in my brain, and I'm going to go, "Oh, maybe that's what I was writing about." Uh, but it hasn't. It hasn't happened yet with with these books. I'm, I'm I'm
0: I'm at a loss. Tell us a little bit about your vampire clans because they are very funny and they're very separate. So tell us a. Explain to us, kind of the the uh, setup for Already Dead and No Dominion.
1: In the 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 most powerful clan is uh, the Coalition, and initially, when I started Already Dead, I thought the Coalition would control everything. And this is in New York. This is in. I'm sorry, yes, in Manhattan. The the books uh, thus far are set entirely in Manhattan. They will expand to Brooklyn in uh, the third book, but they will stay restricted to urban New York. New York City, uh, and uh, I had initially thought that the coalition, which is a very restrictive, rightward-leaning uh, uh, vampire clan that is concerned with secrecy and uh, and keeping its its own hold on on power and on the vampire clans that exist under the surface of day-to-day New York City, I thought they would control the whole island, and that Joe would be. Um, It's kind of a rogue element in this world who who managed to stay outside their authority by doing little favors and bits of business. Um, initially, I had envisioned uh, this opposing clan, this this opposite number clan, the society, which is leftward re- leaning, interested in trying to uh, unite all the vampires in, so that they can uh, take the virus that causes vampirism public with a united front and hopefully not just be eradicated the minute they become public or thrown into concentration camps and, and experimented upon. Um I initially I thought that they would just be a, a small group of rabble-rousers in a couple of basements. I don't remember the moment that it kind of clicked over and I thought that it was more interesting if the society was a clan in and of themselves and that they had actually fought a revolution in the late 60s and early 70s and broke off a part of coalition territory. And the the more I went down the road the more interesting it became to have different groups. Um I think once I wrote the society and wrote the society in a style where they were reflective of a lot of the East Village revolutionaries that that I would see and interact with when I lived in the East Village in New York. So the anarchists and uh, uh, the various minority rights groups and social rights groups and uh, gender rights groups and on and on and on and on and it's it's doesn't it's not the the heyday of the east village for those things but it's still you know a boiling a boiling point and um and uh it it became fun obviously and there was a certain amount of satire that was i hope loving satire i hope uh, that was present in there, and then I I wanted to extend it a little bit, and so the hood is the clan that exists above 110th Street and encompasses Harlem and Washington Heights and Inwood and uh, the the neighborhoods that are classically uh, poorer and non-white and uh, for the last well over a hundred years now, um, and. Now I'm playing with a clan out in Brooklyn for what will be the third book and some smaller clans on the lower tip of Manhattan I referred to a couple times in one of the books, The Bulls and the Bears, without having explored them yet. But the, the there's I've implied that there is a clan of stockbroker uh, vampires for all intents and purposes down there um, and that I may or
0: may not get to later. It's funny to read about hippie, vegan vampires. And what, But what's nice about it is that, as you say, you get to enjoy, identify, and enjoy that there are the beliefs. The beliefs are presented in a positive manner, even though they're being presented by these bloodthirsty monsters. So tell us a little bit about kind of this tension of one of the things that how the vampire um as a monster allows you to create characters who have a conflict that is itself somewhat humorous.
1: Okay, this is and this is actually something that I can uh, uh talk a little more seriously about because it's starting because it's it's something that I I'm just with the having just recently finished the manuscript for the third book is uh and is is, is kind of at the heart of the books so the more I think about it is the idea of this tension between what the, m- most of the vampires are trying to do is create some version of their old lives and trying to still live the way they lived before. And there will be these occasional voices that come from, from other vampires who will try to shock them out of this and try to, try to say, don't you even understand? You, don't you realize, don't you see that what you're trying to do is impossible? You are no longer that. You are beyond that, in whether for the good or for ill, you can't live your life that way and it's It's a speech that's delivered to Joe a couple of times by a couple of different people because he's still trying to exist in some semblance of a normal life. He hurts people, he kills people, he is not adverse at all to killing people to get blood. He, the only reason he's adverse to it is because' it's, it, 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 it it risks exposing him. Uh, and putting him in physical danger, but essentially he's trying to make money, rent an apartment, he's got a girlfriend who doesn't know he's a vampire, of course uh and and the real mechanics of his life are are still trying to pull him towards being a normal guy, and in the same way with the with the members of the society, so the the hippie vampires. These are people whose values are so intense and so strong and whose beliefs are so intense and and so strong that even though they found themselves in a situation where they have to drink blood to, to survive, they can't leave that behind. They still believe those things. And it's their concern isn't their concern isn't about the grotesquerie of of how they survive their concern is how to find a morally acceptable way to drink blood how to how to find a way and 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 how to deal with the fact that they now feel like they're a minority and that they're being discriminated against and trying to find a way to put themselves back to where they think they should belong that they 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 feel like they're being uh uh oppressed by the coalition the you know the top power on the on the vampire food chain and they feel like they don't have a situ- they're not in a situation where they can risk exposing themselves to the real top power in the world which is all the normal people out there because they're afraid that if they do they will as i mentioned get thrown into concentration camps be experimented upon uh be discriminated against in a you know in a as as being not just um uh uh, 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 specially abled, but discriminated against as being not human. Um, and they can't get away from that mode of thought. Um, the The folks in the books that most embrace, the ones that are most suited to survival tend to be the ones that most embrace their nature and say, "This is I'm not that anymore. I am something else and I need to live my life in some other way. So the ones that live in the sewer, the ones that uh, segregate themselves and surround themselves with their own kind and essentially view humanity as a food source, those are the ones that are going to have the, the higher chances to to survive as opposed to the ones that are trying to integrate at some level and still trying to cling to who they were.
0: So, so a lot of this vampire work then does become speak to social issues like marginalization, yeah, but only raise, you know only prejudice. only when
1: I think about it, <laughs> not when I'm writing it, you know. Uh uh it it you know as I said before, these things tend to just kind of open up. But it is an aspect there's in the in the third book there's a uh a uh a lesbian vampire who's part of the the society who who's appears in in all three books and who should just be an, a natural enemy to Joe who is as Biased and politically incorrect and uh, dismissive of everything she stands for, as you can imagine. but in some way, they are they are odd allies because they're both uh, uh, have some level of belief in in, in expedience and in in want to get things done. and they have certain certain sympathies. and uh, and in the third book, uh, the one that I just finished, they spend some time traveling together, and she has a chance to speak more fully than she has in the in the two books that have been published so far so far. And one of the things she talks about in the book is, um, how little their lives have become because of the virus, how restricted that they are now that they can you know only go out at, at night. They can only survive by, you know, a certain restricted set of actions. They can't travel. They can't expose themselves. And she talks about how she had been to Europe when she was a young woman and how she had been to Hawaii and she had, you know, traveled, traveled the world with her family and she had had all these experiences. And now everything is narrowed down to and honed to this one little point. So... Yeah, there's those those things are in the book. But as I say, that's they only you know all of a sudden they just kind of pop out in little kernels in, in my thoughts. I never think about them, and then all of a sudden they're there, and uh, I may be writing about them explicitly and at length. But then you know it's and then it's not until I have a conversation with someone like you that I went, well, then the, the, there is this, there is this. Thing. Oh yeah, well, well may, yeah, no, the whole book is basically about that. Uh, it's those strange those strange things, and not unique to me. I think that there's there's a lot of that writers experience a lot of that.
0: Tell us a little bit about what's coming up from you. You've finished the third book, What's it called?
1: The third book will be called the the working title was God's Mad Men, which is actually a line from from Dracula uh Van Helsing when they're pursuing Dracula back to to Transylvania uh Van Helsing refers to himself and to his the the crew of of vampires hunters as having become God's madmen. And religion plays a, a large role in the third book. So the working title was God's Madman, but there's a dark horse replacement title coming up the backstretch. It's a it's a line in the book, uh, and the line is uh, "Half the Blood of Brooklyn." So it'll either be God's Madmen or Half the Blood of Brooklyn. Uh, and I'm starting to list towards Half the Blood of, of Brooklyn. I, God's Madmen I might be able to use for a future book, but Half the Blood of Brooklyn it's either this book or or I won't be able to use it again. And I and I like it. Um... And that'll be out uh, around this time next year. And the the only the only teaser I'm really willing to give on it is Joe Pitt goes to Brooklyn, uh, and half the blood of Brooklyn <laughs> gives away everything you really need to know. Um, so that's done. And there's another book that's done that will be out later earlier this year. That'll be that will be out in fall, I believe. And that's a standalone uh, crime book called The Shotgun Rule. And uh, now that the hank thompson trilogy is done uh, i'll still be writing in crime um so we're i'm i'm starting i don't have a new series um and i don't know if i ever will have another series in crime but this is a standalone um about uh set in the early 1980s about a uh a group of teenage juvenile delinquents in a uh, redundancy a group of juvenile delinquents in uh, in a uh, bay area suburb uh, not too much should be read into that uh, or my bi- uh, you know anybody who's familiar with my biography should't make too much of that uh, who break into the wrong house and steal the wrong thing and uh, trouble ensues and that's uh, a the, that's definitely a book that's a little bit different from what's preceded the all the Joe books and the Hank books are all first person present tense uh, and so everything is from the narrative style is by necessity similar and everything is from the protagonists. Of view, obviously, so you, you follow sit on their shoulder as you drive through the story. This is a third person book, and it's told with an ensemble uh cast, and the point of view moves around from chapter to chapter between the characters. So it's a it'll be a little bit different, and it's a little different in tone. There's there's plenty of humor, but I think it tends to be a a, a touch more somber. But I always think they tend to be a touch more sombre, and then and then I find out that they're
0: not. Somebody uh, tells you that. Biting eyeballs. All all this funny. is
1: funny, you know. So you never know. I think it's hard to. I think it's hard to argue that this is a book that was that is definitely a, 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 that's played not only played less for laughs, but but is just even the incidental laughs will be fewer. There's still lots of humor in there. You can't have a group of teenage boys uh uh interacting without there being a some you know extensive use of the word fuck uh and 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 a lot of put downs and a lot of you know and just a lot of a lot of ridiculous bullshit going on um and then uh right now when i uh i'm traveling a little bit right now and when i stop traveling which will will be very soon I'll be uh, starting work on a new novel, which will be uh, an LA set novel. I just recently moved to Los Angeles, and um, and having written six books set in New York, and and knowing that I'm going to write at least two more Joe Pitt books set in New York, I wanted to break it up a little bit. And uh, LA is obviously, you know, they're the two great, the three great noir cities are Paris. Uh, New York and and L A and you know Lon- London London run- London London runs fourth and uh, I say that out of ignorance having never been there um, and L A once you're living in it it's there's there's I don't think there's any way you could live there and not and be a crime writer and not want to write something set in L A because the sprawl and the and and the uh, uh, the variety just invites it and screams for it so uh, I'll be starting to work on an L A crime novel.
0: You know, one thing we haven't talked about is your ability to sling a blue language about. It's part of the charm of your work. <laughs> I have to admit that that in the latest Joe Pitt book, I was thrilled to find one of my favorite uh, curse words, "dickweed." I, <laughs> this is not a book a word you find in in books often. So, tell us a little bit about how you. Keep that going. Do you have to? Do you when you revise? Do you have to ratchet back? Do you find you have to ratchet back?
1: You know, I I I I assumed that it would be a. I thought a lot of things would be a problem when I when I sold cot stealing. I thought that there would that language be would be a problem. I thought that the lack of quotation marks would be a problem. I thought that all kinds of changes would be asked for, and and really they weren't. Uh, The one major change that that we tried to implement was the cat changing the cat torture, and it just didn't work without it. Mm-hmm. Go, go figure. Um, and uh, and 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 I assumed that uh, we'd be cutting some some fucks out of there, and as it turned out, that was not uh, an issue. And it wasn't until the second or third manuscript I was working on with my editor, and he and he sent it back with his cover letter, just talking about you know things that he thought we should play with and and tweak on it. And I was going down you know the various points, and I get to one, and it says words to the effect of Charlie, this will never be a G-rated movie. But I think we can afford to cut a few fucks out of this one, and my reaction, you know, internally was, "What the fuck are you talking about?" <laughs> it's just, fuck you. Come on, you know me. Fuck that. How How fucking bad can it be? So, uh, so I cracked the uh, the manuscript, and you know, he said, he said, "Look, I redlined a few of these," and I started going through it, and I started hitting some of the some of the places where he had redlined the fucks, and I was like. Man, he didn't take out half enough because I had lines in that book. I think it was six bad things. It was probably I think that it was either either it was six bad things or the first Joe Pitt. It was either that or already dead. And there were lines that were basically fuckity fuck fuck fuck. Or, you know, pages where I was just I couldn't get down. where it was just littered across, and they're still in there, mm-hmm. but uh, but it was relentless. And I ended up cutting more than he had uh, he had asked for. And now I find that I'm a little more conscious about it. And I find that when I do my revisions after I finish my first draft, I'm starting to cut a few because, they, I mean, they're always going to be there, lots of them. But there, there are definitely places where it's it's serving less to emphasize... <laughs> and starting to de-emphasize a passage and you can almost have a character make more of a point by not saying fuck in my book and have it have somebody's ears pick up and and, wow they didn't use the word fuck this must be really important or they're really angry they didn't say fuck
0: (laughs) we've been talking with charlie houston his new novel is no dominion his new latest Hank Thompson novel is A Dangerous Man. Thank you for speaking
1: with me, Charlie. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me, man.
0: You're listening to Rick Kleffel, The Agony Column Podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.